Today's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 11, verses 13 to 32. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This is God's word. Thank you, Clarice, for reading God's word for us this morning. And I apologize that you had such a lengthy passage to read. You read it well. And I feel that I need to apologize for bringing such a rich, robust passage and having to deliver it in such a short amount of time. If we were in China, we could do this in a few hours. But this is Singapore, so I'll try and be uh, faster. Now, we are having some technical issues. We will uh, try and get those resolved. I suspect church mice, but... Are we good? It shows plugged in here, but I don't see it. Do you see it? Apparently, this photo was taken at night. Oh, thank you, brothers and sisters, for this. 
Uh, last week, if you were with us, Eugene led us through the first 12 verses of chapter 11 of Romans. This is the last of three chapters in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with this difficult theological conundrum as to why God's chosen people, after all this time, after many Jewish preachers proclaiming the Messiah, after all these prophecies align with the person of Jesus Christ, yet still they reject Him. And it began, remember, with Pastor Eugene's teaching last week, verse 1 of chapter 11, that says, So has God rejected His people? And that very verse ended with a resounding, by no means. And then verse 11 through their trespass, salvation came to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, Israel, this is not actually about you. This is not a Pauline idea, just in case you're wondering. The idea that God was a God for all nations and not just one people didn't begin in the New Testament. It was an idea throughout Israel's history, recorded in Israel's scriptures. In fact, in very early, before Israel was even a nation, while they were slaves in Egypt, you may recall a man named Moses was given the most difficult assignment on the planet. In essence, the assignment is this. Moses, go wreck the world's biggest economy. Meaning, go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man, a man who is considered to be a living God, and tell him, I am going to take the engine of your economy. Your slaves are God's people. Let them go. That was an extraordinary assignment all by itself. But notice God's words to Moses launching into this difficult assignment. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, he says this to Moses. Let me stay with my notes. There he is, the living God. Then you shall say to this man, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my only begotten son. You're with me, right? No. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Israel is my firstborn son. Nobody talks about their firstborn son if they don't have any other sons. You see, even in the very beginning, prehistory of Israel, God was announcing, there will be many children I will call my child. Not just this one, but this one is my firstborn son. And so for two and a half chapters, Paul has been reminding, remember, the Jewish believers coming back into Rome, finding their church now populated with new believers who weren't from the chosen people, who weren't God's precious ones, Paul's now reminding them he's got other children. This is not just about you. Now, how many of you parents, this is not a rhetorical question, so get ready for some interaction. How many of you know the deep joy and terrifying sorrow of being the parents of more than one child? <laughs> okay, Thank you, only one person and me. We're the only ones who will admit it. So, so here's the thing. When, when you're the parent of more than one child, no, I get, I, I get it for the younger parents. One child changes everything. Last sleep, you know, everything is different when you have one child. But, but when that second child comes along, he, here's the philosophy. 
If there is a time when there's no screaming, no shouting, no weeping, gnashing of teeth, take that photo and remember that moment. These are our two first. We have three, but then we only had two. These two precious boys. And I remembered the awkward moment when we took that second bundle of joy to our firstborn son and put that boy in his lap and he went, The sudden realization that I'm not my parents' only treasure. Right? In five minutes, maybe not even five minutes after this beautiful photo was taken, that broom went up and came down on the head of that precious secondborn. <laughs> and it got to the point I wondered, like, Sherry, is he even safe with his brother? We've we got to keep a watch over them. And so constantly I was reacting. A scream and then I would rush. Discipline would incur. And then the secondborn gets smart. Scream, I would rush, punish the firstborn, and I realized he's screaming before anything happened. <laughs> and, and, and so I had to have a second conversation. The first conversation was with the older one, white, blonde hair. You know, Leighton, buddy, we love you. But this is not all about you. The sun doesn't just rise so that you can have light in your day. The world is more than just, just about you. And then I had to have a second conversation with the secondborn. This is not about you either. And this is a conversation that the Apostle Paul is now having with the church at Rome. First dealing with firstborn Israelites, you know, those Jewish Christians. It's not really about you. Now he turns. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So just so you know that Jewish people have two categories of people. In the Old Testament, there was Jewish people, God's chosen people, and there was goyim, which are insects. That's all of us. But in the New Testament, sophistication has come, and so, so there was Jews, and then there was te ethne, the ethnics. That's the nations, all of us. So now, Paul turns to us, turns to the Gentile believers and say, now let me have a word with you. Let me have a word with the secondborn. It's not about you either. So inasmuch as I am an apostle, let's just settle these. Sorry, sorry to put Greek words in there. Let's, let's just settle this. That, that word apostello means to send away. It was applied to an ambassador of a king sending away an ambassador to represent the king. It's applied to, it's often used to send missionaries in our world today. And he specifically says, I am an apostolos to you, the ethnics, the second born. And I magnify, I actually literally, I glorify this ministry so that the firstborn would notice there's more treasure in their father's life. Not just you. Do you remember how Eugene described the Lord last week? He said, our God is a missionary who strives for salvation of every tribe and tongue and nation. 
And so here's my definition of a mission-minded church. It's not a church that has a missions committee who has a program that is missional. It is a church that is missional every day. It's a church that leaves the building and enters their mission field because then we are reflecting the God who called us to himself and equips us for this very task to represent him in the nations. The Apostle Paul is saying, I am doing that. I'm representing this God to the nations because the nations are also his treasure. From the very beginning, when he was still calling you his firstborn, he had in his heart not just you, but those whose eyes are on you. That is this sending God. And so secondly, in verses 15 and 16, he says this, for their rejection, meaning the rejection of the Jews, means the reconciliation of the world because the firstborn rejected. It's not final, not even their rejection. Even their rejection will be shown to be a slave to the sovereign purposes of God in that in their rejection, there's room in the tree. The rejected branches are broken off, new branches grafted in. You know, there, there's some glorious uncertainty in this phrase, because if you leave it in the context of this verse, it, it might suggest, first of all, that God is cutting away the Jewish branches and the Gentiles are given life by having opportunity to be grafted in. But, and not to ruin the plot, it may also mean that God, the gardener, is gathering up the dead, broken, discarded branches and regrafting them into his tree. And then the Apostle Paul does what he famously does, which is mixing his metaphors, baking and botany. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. In other words, Gentiles, don't think you're helping out the tree. You're not bringing special benefit to the tree. First fruits, by the way, is reference to the tithe. It's what is taken from what God has given and devoted to Him for His purposes. The instruments in the temple were called first fruits because they were dedicated, devoted to use in the temple for God's use. And Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, devoted for God's purpose. He is called the root of David, devoted to the purpose of holiness. It is the root that is holy and that makes the branches that are holy to be holy. It is that first holy lump of dough that makes the whole lump of bread holy. We are not helping out God. I say this because missions has a history of colonial missionaries coming, condescendingly sharing 
We're here because we've got education. We wash proper. We cut our hair proper. God, forgive my ancestors. We are not helping. If we think we are, we're actually harming. It is only the fact that by His mercy and the rejection of Israel's that we have been grafted in, that we have been made not holy as in better than people, but holy as in devoted to Him for His purposes, no longer our own purposes. Branches do not have independent purposes from the tree. When we're grafted in, we have new purpose that we didn't have before. Live on purpose. Second, he would say to the Gentiles, seek praise and start rejecting that pride. Or he could have said, in the middle of your praises, don't stumble into pride. Now, I don't know if fathers do this anymore, but my dad used to say it this way. Ian, remember your place, boy. Meaning when adults are talking, that's the time for you not to talk. I would also come into this conversation full of childhood joy and want to add some ridiculous thing to the conversation that was important to me. And my dad would say, Ian, remember your place, boy. That's what God is saying to the Gentile believers. You are a product of God's mercy. We have this opportunity because of the great sadness of Israelites' rejection. You share in their inheritance. Why? Because verse 17 says they were broken off. They were broken off, and so we were grafted in. And now we share in the nourishing root. So reject pride. We didn't come to the tree because the tree somehow needed the nourishment we would add. Without being grafted in, we too would be dead in our trespasses and sin. It is the root that makes us holy, that brings us life, that causes us to be uniquely devoted to God and to His purposes. So then he would say, Reject pride in verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. I'm giving you a moment to consider that. I'm giving you a moment because I've never heard anyone say, look at that Buddhist, so proud one. But for we who are Christians, I often hear, oh, those Christians are so proud, you know. Think they're better than everyone else. So, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, and that word if assumes they are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Do you know that olive trees are some of the longest living trees in the Middle East? In fact, if you were able to be transported to this moment to an olive grove, you would get the image of what the Apostle Paul is saying. Imagine any one branch on this tree saying, good thing this has the support of me. 
all of the branches are held up by this awesome, holy root structure that stands as botanical testimony of how badly needed are the roots and the branches that are grafted in should be filled with a sense of not pride, but wonder. But more than this, it's not just that. Let pride yield to wonder and what? Fear. Now, I don't know about the Singapore church, but in the Western church, we like to tamp down that word a bit. We like to dilute it. So, I've often heard a message about fear of God saying, so this fear is like kind of a fear that you have at a great exhibition at Disneyland. It's a sense of awe and wonder. Actually, you know, that word fear comes from the Greek word phobeo. Any ideas of what English word we get from that word? It's phobia. Phobos is terror. Have fear of this God. At the same time, you have a sense of wonder that this fearsome God, the God who gives life and takes it away, has granted you mercy. That's where praise should come from, not from our own ability to sing or play instruments or that we see how well we're progressing in the Christian life. It comes from the realization I'm the object of mercy when I deserve the wrath of this fearsome, horrific, terry God, He shows me life and mercy. That's how joy comes. And sometimes I come into my own worship time and I don't feel that sense of joy and that reminds me it's been a long time since I was at the cross remembering what it cost Him to show me Mercy. They were broken off because of unbelief. You stand fast because of faith. Not because of your hard work. Not because you show up on Sunday even when it's hazy. Faith is a gift God gives us. Why is it a gift? Because He's allowed us He's gifted us the observation of how faithful He is even when we are not. And I learn to trust Him just as you have learned to trust these pews. He has proven Himself, like these pews, to be reliable. He gives us that gift and then Next, he, he reminds the Gentiles, us, the newcomers, that we, all of us, the founders and the newcomers, the Israelites and the Gentiles, we, all of us, live under the same standard for God who did not spare the natural branches or the angels. Neither will He spare us. Note then both the kindness and severity of God. They exist in the same person. Both mercy and justice. Both grace and righteousness exist in the very 
same person. And so in verse 25, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Do you see where he's heading? For God has the power to graft them in again. That means that this God is a constantly seeking, dead branch gathering, raise the dead powering God. That's why our founder had to die because without the resurrection, where is our realization that God can do something miraculous like breaking off these branches, casting them off to die, and then drawing life from death? Only God can do that. Listen, religion cannot help you with that. You could be the most religious person on the planet. I don't care what you call your religion. Religion is not raise the dead power. Only God is that. Religion is not life-giving. Only God is that. Religion cannot speak all things into existence. Only God does that. And He is ever-seeking, dead branch gathering, life from death giving. He is that God. That is His plan. And so, this is what Paul says. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their olive tree? Now, now here's the problem that a lot of theologians have. Is it, is it possible that, that Paul is saying God's doing something that is not found anywhere in the natural world? Is this right? rightly wreck his illustration, wreck his, you know, metaphor? Because in Paul's day, in order to increase fruit, you see, it took 10 years to develop an olive tree to the point where it would produce fruit. And so to accelerate fruit bearing, farmers would go into the wilds and they would pull up young olive trees and use them as a root base. They would replant these young olive trees in their grove and they would graft in older branches that were already bearing fruit. And like, so, so yeah, that's not just contrary to nature, it's, it's contrary to the practice. So is, is, is Paul misinformed? So this is um, a first century botanist that most people had no aware of, awareness of until, until the 16th century. He, he lived in Spain, Lucius Columella. I, I probably need Isis and Yvonne to come up here and pronounce this because he was really Spanish, but he was a Roman citizen. And he wrote a 12-volume set in Latin. In English, it was called On Rural Affairs. And one volume alone was dedicated on how to increase productivity in olive trees. And the fascinating thing he pointed out was, when drought comes, these young root bases don't have a good enough root structure, so they die, and all the fruit is lost. This man wrote 
as a contemporary of the Apostle Paul who had in his plan to go to Spain, but we have no idea how he could have known about this 12-volume set unless the Holy Spirit just informed him about something that is true. So let me say this. The Bible is not a science book. But it is absolutely authoritative in anything it says. If it talks of botany, then it is probably right. Trust it. Lucius Colomiella said, do this. Take the old, deep-rooted trees. Cut off young stalks of the young wild olives, and they will rapidly produce because they're nourished reliably in dry weather and in wet by the depth of these roots. If we were to visit an olive grove in the Middle East today, we would see this. These ancient, huge, gnarly trunks with thin, young branches poking out everywhere. How does this happen? It happens because some earthly farmer cut off new shoots and consistently grafts this into the ancient of days. That's what has happened to us. This holy, divine botanist has gone seeking wild olive branches, has taken us and grafted us into himself. That is the glory of this seeking God. And here is what the Apostle Paul is saying. One day, the day is coming. Don't be proud, but God is looking for his prodigal older son. He is that life-giving, powerful, seeking, dead branch gathering God. And he will one day bring his people back because it's about our good and his glory. I don't want to spend a lot of time reading this because I know we're getting late in the, in the morning. This will be my covenant. This is a scripture taken directly out of their own preachers. Isaiah 59. This is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. Who is he talking about? He's talking about his firstborn. Those who've rejected him. And we will celebrate with them when God does this mighty work of gathering up the dead, drawing life from them, and grafting them back into his trunk and the roots that nourish. Why? For his glory. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. As regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You remember the passage that says God had mercy on David's children because of his love for David. I'm a product of that mercy because there was a time I was broken off, hating the church, despising Christians, angry and miserable, and for the sake of of my God's love for my faithful parents. He gathered up this dead branch. That's why, Christian parents, you might have grief now, but live well for the Lord. 
Let him love you richly. He is still the God who gathers dead branches. He is still active in his world. They may be enemies of the gospel for your sake, new people. But as regards to election, God's purposes for them, they are beloved. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 said, if you are a believer and no one in your family is, don't leave your husband. Don't leave your spouse. Because your family is sanctified, set apart because of your trust in him. I'm the product of my parents' love for God. They blessed me by loving God more. I assumed they hated me because they let me go. They let me be homeless because they loved God more. They allowed me to know the discipline of being a broken branch. And so I'm a product of their affection and God's election. And one day, for His glory, He's going to do it again because His calling is irrevocable. For just as you, and hear it as Him saying it to all of us, not just this pastor, maybe my story is more graphic, my story may be more painful, but just as all of you, not just the founders, not just Israel, but just like all of us were at one time disobedient to God. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. Do we, do we understand that all of us have been assigned by God, disobedience. Let, let me just let that sink in. I, I didn't manipulate this text. This is straight out of the Word of God. For God has consigned, that word in Greek means imprisoned, all to disobedience, so that He might have mercy on all. In other words, no one appreciates the freedom that we have as much as those who are in Changi prison right now. Your disobedience, my disobedience, would be so that we would notice mercy, so that we would long for mercy, and then when mercy comes, our praise would flow full of wonder. God's purpose is in this. Every once in a while as a, a pastor, we have the solemn privilege of walking with a friend or brother or sister who has discovered that they have a genetic disorder that is going to lead to their death. The irony is they got it from people they love, their, their parents. Israel had a genetic disorder they got from their mother and father. 
It's called sin. Just like Eve was encouraged by the evil one to long to be the God who made her, she passed that desire to her children and her children's children, and eventually it got to me. Eventually, it got to you. When God does something in my world, I automatically begin to assume I could do it better. God's ideas are not my ideas, and I kind of like my ideas, and everything in my culture encourages me to embrace this resentment of the God who made me. It encourages me to be the God who made me. That's why I am told I should be Jehovah Jireh, provider God for my children. (laughs) So we have this genetic inclination to desire to be the God who made us, and we find ourselves in this prison of disobedience. In fact, that's why I made this friend Yeah, it's a rooster, in case you're wondering. Every morning at 6 a.m., he meets me at McDonald's just to worship me. (laughs) He comes singing my praises. Sherry tells me he's just crowing like all roosters, but I know better. He's coming so delighted. I mean, runs to my chair because he apparently knows I've been buying a breakfast wrap only so that I can show my mercy. And I tear off little pieces, and he picks away and chortles this little praise chorus. My interpretation, of course. It makes me feel good. Ian the benevolent, Ian the merciful, Ian the compassionate provider, sitting next to honestly, my critical wife. <laughs> but eventually, I've, I've noticed some things about this rooster. As long as I'm dropping crumbs, he only has eyes for the floor. The only time he looks up is when the crumbs stop dropping. We're, we're moving into a reflection moment, unless you can't tell. When's the last time you've looked up? Got some crisis? Drops of crumbs aren't coming down? Because if that's your religion, you got the same religion as a rooster. I... I began to realize my faith is like a crisis faith. I cry out when I need something. In fact, in Western culture, we have this exclamation that has become secular. Oh, God. Oh, my God. It began in the church in crisis moments just to remind you, you're my God. Where are those crumbs? I've, I've noticed something else about this rooster. Once his stomach is full, he wanders off. 
In fact, I had a crisis moment last Monday because I only have a breakfast wrap and I eat most of it. But last Monday, a false god showed up with a whole bag of breadcrumbs. <laughs> See, if it's only about what this god gives you, then any god will do. He left me, and still I linger. Every day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I get my wrap, tear up the crumbs, no one comes. Chasing some false god with a big bag. <laughs> you know what God longs for from us? He longs to be enough. Not the stuff he gives, but just him. He longs for us to remember the day when one day in his house was better than thousands elsewhere. He longs for the time when each of us would say, better to be a doorman in the house of the Lord than a professional whatever in the top of my industry. Even when we're saying, glory to God, He has made me a professional whatever, He still longs to be enough for us. This is where we're at now. This moment of reflection. The question is, God has a purpose for grafting us in so that we would be filled with wonder so that we would be stewards of the grace of God, not just owners of the name Grace Baptist Church. So that we would long to celebrate just that we have been grafted in, nourished and supported by the root of David. Is it enough? And if, like me, maybe... You've got your own version of rooster. If, like me, you suddenly realized, I, I've kind of wandered a bit. I've found biblical justification for the stuff I actually just want. Then what small step do you, do I, need to take today? just to align myself to the pleasure and purpose of God for us. For most of us, that means a step back. For some of us, that might mean just an opening of our eyes and asking, God, am I broken off? Am I still consigned? Is this my disobedient moment? And if so, oh God, will you gather this broken branch? Will you restore me to the tree, the joy of my salvation? Will you just embrace this broken child? I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Maybe you consider yourselves one of the founders. Maybe like the Gentiles in this early church, 
you're a newcomer. But to all of us is this question. Today, God has assigned this holy moment. He has set off, he's marked out this piece of Singapore geography for us to find ourselves in the shadow of the almighty resurrection power God. This God who gathers dead branches who plucks up the wild olive leaves and grafts us all into him. I suspect some of us need to rediscover the wonder of that, that he should come seeking See us exactly as we were, wild or broken. Those are the two options. And gather us both up. You had lots of reasons not to be here today. The air is bad. It's hazy. And yet somehow, because of God's sovereign purpose, you find yourself here. What is one step that you would take today to more closely be aligned to the pleasure of God for you? To be, to be more fully devoted to this King of creation who set his roots deep who supports us in all ways and who is now in his garden seeking and gathering. If you're like me, maybe that one step is, God, here I am. Pick me up. While in others you are calling, don't pass me by. I am broken, in need of a Savior, in need of authentic praise that has known fear but now longs for wonder. Father God, we bless you because you are the gardener of our souls. You seek, you gather, and you pull life from the dead. You are that resurrection power, God. We celebrate the day when you'll be true to your promises and take the broken branch of Israel and graft her back in. But Father, we thank you that even now you respond to the prayers of other broken branches. So come, O oh God, lift us into your everlasting arms. Regraft us. Remind us that your calling is indeed 
eternal, irrevocable. No one and nothing, not even our own efforts, can we be snatched from the hand of the Holy One of Israel. So we turn afresh to you today. Do your wondrous work in your people for our good, for your glory. Amen.